So let me begin by asking you a question today. Has this ever, has this ever happened to you? It happens pretty frequently to me. Where somebody will say to me, I met somebody who knew you before you became a Christian. Has that ever happened to you? And, and when somebody says to you, for me, I got saved in high school, so it's when people say to me, I met somebody who went to school with you, I always will say, well, wait, wait, before you go any further, let me tell you, because I don't know what they've heard. Let me tell you, Jesus changes everything. And he does, doesn't he? Will you tell your neighbor, tell him, help me preach, tell him, Jesus changes everything. He does. He changes everything. And this is, in fact, what we've been learning over these weeks together, where we've been thinking about transformation. It is that, it is that Jesus changes who we are. Over the past, past few weeks, we've been thinking together about what those changes are, what are the changes or the transform, uh, transformation that Jesus works in us. We've been hearing the stories of the who, who are the ones who have been transformed, like Letty that we heard from this morning. And last Sunday, if you'll recall, we learned the why. And I asked you the question last week, why do you suppose that God is so completely committed to changing who we are? Why is he so intent on transforming who we are? And this is really important because there is a purpose to our lives. The why is all wrapped up in our purpose. And the purpose that God has designed for your life and mine cannot be accomplished. It is impossible for it to be accomplished unless we are transformed. Here's the way I said it to you last week, and I don't ever want you to forget this. The old me is incapable of doing what God wants the new me to do, okay? The old me is incapable of doing what God wants the new me to do. To do. And for that reason, God is committed to transforming us into who he wants us to become so that we can fulfill his purpose. I want you to think about what we learned last week. They're going to put this on the screen for you. You probably don't want to write it down because you're not going to have time to get it. But here it is. It is that God's purpose for every Christian is to conform us to the image of Christ so that we will be right representatives of Jesus as we carry on his ministry of reconciliation in the world. That really summarizes what it is. His purpose for us is to change us into the likeness of Jesus. I cannot represent him as I should in this world. I cannot be the ambassador for Christ that he's called me to be if my life is so unlike him, if he is not changing me to be more and more like him. So we've talked about the what, we've talked about the who, and we've talked about the, the why. Today we're going to begin thinking about the how, how it is that Jesus transforms us. We're going to spend three weeks talking about it because there are three elements to this process of transformation. I think I mentioned this to you a few weeks ago. If you could envision in front of me a table, a three-legged table or three-legged, in Madison County we say legged, a three-legged table and that is the table of transformation. Now imagine your life, my life, we're on top of this transformation and God is working change within us. Well there are three legs that are holding up or pulling off or bringing about the process of transformation. 
One is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit changes us. Another is the Word of God. The Bible changes us. And the third is Christian community. The people of God or our fellowship changes us. And as you know, with any three-legged table, if you pull out only one leg, that table becomes wobbly and, and what should be happening on that table becomes impossible. Well, if I'm going to be transformed, there are three things God's going to be working in me, the Spirit, the Word, and His people to bring about the transformation. And we're going to talk about each of those over these three weeks. That means that these next three, well, today and the next two Sundays, are going to be vital in your spiritual development. They're going to be critical to the transformation that God wants to work in you. So I want to challenge you to be here. Make it a point. I'm going to church next Sunday. I'm coming to church two weeks from today. I'm going to learn these truths. And if you're working or you're traveling and you can't be here, then tune in online or watch it later on the website. I want you talking about these truths in your small groups. Uh, I want you discussing them in your small group uh, Bible study times. And, and if you're not in a group, get in a group so that you can have the benefit of speaking into one another's lives. Today we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Why don't you write this down? The agent of transformation is the indwelling Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that brings about transformation within us. And we're going to be studying in Romans chapter number 8 today. By the way, did you know that Romans 8 has been called the greatest chapter in the Bible? That's a pretty high bar. And I imagine that would be open to interpretation or opinion. But some have said this is the greatest chapter in the Bible. And one of the reasons that, that it's declared to be the greatest chapter is because of the truths that it brings to us on the basis of what Paul's already taught us in the chapters previous to chapter number 8. If you're going to understand the beauty of Romans 8, then you need to understand what's come before it. In fact, Romans 8 and verse number 1 says, there is therefore, now stop right there, when the Bible uses the word therefore, what are you supposed to do? This is the simplest Bible interpretation lesson I've taught you over the years. When the Bible says therefore, you always look and see what it's there for. What's he referring to? So in Romans 8, 1, he says, based on what I've been saying, here are these truths. Well, what are the things he's been saying? How far back do you need to look to, to get ready to understand Romans chapter 8? Well, I would say perhaps all the way back to the beginning. Uh, but let's just go to chapter 5 for today. Turn back to chapter 5. Let me walk you through chapters 5, 6, and 7 on the way to chapter number eight. Now, I should tell you that I have a lot of ground to cover today and I am moving really quickly and these things are important, so you're gonna have to listen fast. So let's roll. Chapter number five of Romans is the chapter that teaches us the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Everybody listen to me. There are not many paths to heaven. Are you listening? There are not multiple ways to heaven. There are not even two ways to go to heaven. There is one way to be made right with God. And Romans 5 tells us what that way is. Look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Here it is. Therefore, being justified by faith. That's how we are made right with God. When we have faith 
in Jesus Christ. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. He speaks to us in Romans 5 about the substitutionary death of Jesus. He tells us how that Christ took upon our sins and died for us on the cross. And our faith in that work of Jesus is the only way that we can be made right with God. That's chapter 5. Then you come to chapter number 6 where Paul teaches us about the positional resulting reality of having peace with God or being justified by our faith in Jesus. And it has to do with our freedom from sin. Now I want to make sure you're hearing me. Everybody say the word freedom. Shout it out. Freedom. In chapter 6, Paul talks to us about our freedom from sin. Look with me in chapter 6 and verse 6. Notice what he says. Chapter 6 and verse 6 says, knowing this, that our old man, that's the old me, our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. What he teaches us in Romans 6 is that we should be becoming, let me say it again, we should be becoming more and more free from the power of sin or the dominion of sin in our lives. I'm justified by faith in Christ. That's chapter 5. That justification should be setting me free from sin. That's chapter 6. Then you arrive at chapter 7. And in chapter 7, Paul deals very forthrightly with the problem of our flesh. Now let me tell you what just happened in many of our hearts when I said that justification by faith, chapter 5, ought to lead me to greater and greater freedom from sin, chapter 6. Some of us said in our minds, well, why am I not more free than I am? Well, I feel like I'm not completely free. Well, what's the problem with me? Because if it should be setting me free from sin, why am I bound up in sin? That's chapter 7. In chapter 7, he deals with the problem of our flesh. In fact, look at chapter number 7 and verse number 18, where he makes it very plain in verse number 18 when he says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. Look at verse number 20. If I do the things that I don't want to do, it is no more I that is do, that's, uh, doing it, but sin that dwells in me. Look at verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel that wretchedness of your life, the failures and the stumblings and, and wishing you could do better than you're doing and, and we stumble and fail along? We, oh, we, we say, Lord, I'm such a broken person. Oh, God, help me in my brokenness. Do you understand? Chapter 5, we're justified by faith. Chapter 6, it ought to be setting us free. Chapter 7, but there's the struggle with this body that I live in. And those truths are what make chapter 8 the most beautiful chapter in the Bible. Because in chapter number 8, he says, here's the solution. Here's how God sets you free from the flesh, the problem of the flesh. And it happens, and we'll see this in chapter 8, it happens through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So let's talk about it, uh, or let's read it, I should say, Romans 8, beginning in verse number 1. Verse number one says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them 
who are in Christ Jesus. I'm just going to stop right there and give you a chance to shout amen. amen. Wow. There is therefore now how much condemnation? There is no condemnation to those who are... Now, I should say to you, I deserve eternal and fierce condemnation. I have earned fully the condemnation of God for all eternity. Satan regularly tries to condemn me. Sometimes my own mind and thought processes speak condemnation to me. And sometimes people, other people and other Christians speak condemnation to me. But you hear me this morning. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God that there's no condemnation. That's the good news of the gospel, that we are no longer condemned. Verse number two, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of God might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind or set their mind on the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded, fleshly minded, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity, it's hostile against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. If it is true of you that the spirit, uh, but you're in the spirit, if it is so that the spirit of God dwells in you, Now, if any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. But if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, then he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwells in you. Now, we're going to reference some other verses in Romans 8 as we work through it, but let me just stop reading in verse 11 for the sake of time. And I want you to take your pen if you're a note taker. I'm going to ask you to circle some words in these verses. I want you to go back up to verse number 2 and circle the law of the Spirit. Would you circle those words? The law of the Spirit. And it's really, it says the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. But just, just circle the law of the Spirit. And then also in verse number two, you should circle the law of sin. It says the law of sin and death. You can circle the whole thing if you'd like to, but it's speaking of the law of sin. You have the law of the Spirit in verse two and the law of sin in verse two. And then in verse number three, circle uh, just these two words, the law. Just very simply, the law. And you'll see those exact same words again in verse number four, the law. You should circle them there. And then go to verse 7 where he expands it a little bit so we understand fully what he's talking about. In verse 7 he says, the law of God. 
Okay, so verse 3, verse 4, and verse 7, all referring to the same thing, the law of God. So there are three laws mentioned in these verses. The law of sin, the law of the Spirit, and the law of God. Let's talk about these three laws. When the Bible uses the word law, and in all of these instances it's the exact same word, it's referring to what has the rule over you, or what commands you, or what has authority over you. It's not hard for us to understand because it's, the, it's exactly like a, um, a speed limit law or a seatbelt law or, a, or a, you know, a law against murder or, th- or theft or whatever. Any statute in the state of North Carolina or federal statute which prescribes a certain behavior or which commands against a certain behavior has authority and is enforceable over your life. That's what the word law in the Bible means. It is this rule or this command or this authority over you. So in verse 2, when he's talking about the law of sin, he's talking about the authority or the command that sin places on our lives. When he talks about the law of God, He's talking about the commandments, the ordinances contained in Scripture. He's talking about the Ten Commandments, though it's not only the Ten Commandments. They encapsulate it, perhaps, but it's the entire law of God that commands authority over our lives. When he talks about, in verse number two, the law of the Spirit, he's talking about the rule or the authority that the Spirit of God, who indwells us, takes over our lives once we come to Christ. The law of sin, the law of God, and the law of the Spirit. Let's begin by talking about sin, the law of sin. Jot this down. You know it to be true, but put it on your notes somewhere. Sin is a tyrant, and it is. Sin is a tyrant. This is what Romans chapter number 6 says is all about. Do you know that 20 times in Romans 6, 20 times in about 22, 23 verses, Paul deals with the power of sin and how that we ought to be becoming more and more free from sin. And in Romans chapter 6, Paul makes this point, and I want you to hear me very clearly about this. He makes the point that salvation, when you come to faith in Jesus, salvation is more than my sins are forgiven and heaven is my home. It's more than forgiveness for the past and hope for the future. But Paul says in Romans 6 that salvation is also a right now, very present promise that I can be set free from the power of sin that has always ruled over my life. Here's the good news of the gospel. You don't have to live like you've always lived. When you come to Christ... There is a transformation that is promised breaking the power of sin. This tyrant begins to lose his throne in our lives. I want you to look at the uh, the language of tyranny in Romans chapter number 6. I already showed you verse 6. We read that one just a moment ago when he says that we should not serve sin. Serving is a word of uh, enslavement or word of slavery. We don't have to be enslaved to sin. In verse number seven, he says that we are being freed from sin. I'm back in chapter six, 
and verse number seven, where he says to us, look at it, for he that is dead has been set free from sin. Look at verse number 12, chapter six, verse 12. Do not let sin therefore reign in your mortal body. See the language of tyranny? Don't let it reign in your, in your body so that you should obey it. That's a word of tyranny, of command, of rule. And then look at verse number 14. He says in verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you. I mean, listen to the language of Romans chapter six. Don't serve sin. You've been freed from sin. Don't let sin reign in your life. You don't have to obey it. You should not live under the dominion of it. This is the promise of the gospel. That the tyrant of sin, the dominion and the rule of sin has been dethroned in the life of the believer. Now, by the way, when we see sinners, people who don't know Jesus, I, let me clarify, we're all broken. We remain broken until we finally fully reach heaven. But when we see people who don't know Jesus living under the rule of sin, we shouldn't be surprised by that. Randy described what happened to him yesterday. Shouldn't be terribly surprised by such a thing. When we see people who don't know Jesus, who live with a selfish mindset, it is all about them. They are living for what they want. It is about their pleasure, their desires, their demands. When you see that, you may not like it. You may be discouraged by it, but you know what? You shouldn't be shocked by it because it's the dominion of sin. It's the rule of sin over their lives. When we see an unbeliever lying, being dishonest, we shouldn't be surprised by that. When we see them being slothful or lazy, it shouldn't surprise us when they're indulgent of any desire, when, they, when they're lust buckets searching out for the next sexual satisfaction and living a, a, a life of degradation. We shouldn't be shocked by that. When lost people are prideful and vengeful and angry and gossips, those things should not surprise us. But do you know what should shock you? It is when people who claim to know Christ, people who've been born again, they've come to faith in Jesus, and those people are still living angry, vengeful, gossiping, lust-filled, greed-filled, pride-filled lives. That should shock you to your core. Because that is exactly what Christ came to take the dominion away from Satan and away from sin in their lives. The good news is we do not have to live under the dominion of sin any longer. The gospel sets us free. Now, by the way, when we think about sinners and we think about people who don't know the Lord doing that, we, you can watch that even in children, right? I mean, we, we see that, that fruit of the sin nature even showing up in children. Do you know why? Because children are sinners. They are. Now, grandchildren are not sinners. Let's be clear about that. But children are sinners. And, and this, this fruit of, of the sin nature just becomes more and more of a stronghold until finally Christ sets us free. Well, if Jesus sets us free from the dominion of sin, how does he do it? Well, let me begin by telling you how he doesn't do it. That is, he doesn't do it with the law. I want you to jot this down. We've talked about the law of sin. Let's talk about the law of God. You should understand the Bible teaches us that the law is a yoke of bondage. 
And by the way, if you think I'm speaking negatively about something God has instituted, you'll understand in just a moment, so hang with me. In fact, what I'm saying is thoroughly and completely biblical. It is a yoke of bondage. Let me make sure you understand what I mean, what the Bible means when it talks about the law or the law of God. Now, until Jesus came, God had instituted a set of commandments and ordinances, a set of rules, the law. He had instituted this law which was intended to restrict sinful behavior and to redirect the lives of his people toward him. That was the purpose for which he gave it. It was intended to govern fleshly desires and, and move us or turn us toward godly desires. It was like a yoke, like a yoke you would put on an ox or a set of oxen or even a bit that you would put in the mouth of a horse. With a yoke or with a bit, you're able to take the beast and tame the beast and turn the energy of that beast in a right direction. The law is a yoke to restrict sinful behavior. Now, by the way, this is the reason Jesus in Matthew 11 beautifully said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And do you know the next words out of his mouth? Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But until Jesus came, God had given the law in order to harness sin's power and to break the dominion of sin in our lives. In chapter 7, Paul deals very forthrightly about the reason that the law was incapable of accomplishing that. Now, don't misunderstand me. Not as if God failed, because the failure was not on God's part. The failure was on our part. Look at chapter 8. I know we're going to look at chapter 7. But look at what chapter 8 says in verse number 3. For what the law could not do. Well, did the law fail? Well, here's why. It was incapable of accomplishing its purpose. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. The problem wasn't on God's law. The law is perfect and holy. But we are sinners. And here's what, here's what Paul says. In chapter 7, Paul says, God gave us the law to restrict our sins. But we are so messed up. Did you know we are so messed up? Will you tell your neighbor, please tell him, you are messed up. <laughs> Some of y'all like that too much. You're like, I told you you're messed up. We're messed up. You know what Paul says in Romans 7? He says that we are so messed up that the very restrictions of the law only stir up our sinful nature more and more. You ever raised children? I told you they were sinners. Have you ever said to your child, do not cross that line? And do you know what most children will do? They will. Because there's something about a restriction that's placed on someone that causes us to rise up against the restriction, the sin nature within us, that, that, that the law of sin within us rises up against the law of God, the restrictions 
that he placed on us. Look at chapter 7 and verse 5. Paul says this plainly. For when we were in the flesh, the motions or the passions of sins, which were aroused by the law. God said, thou shalt not. And our flesh said, yes, I will. Because that sinful passion is stirred up by the restriction. Look at verse number 8. But sin taking occasion by the commandment was working in me all manner of evil desire. She might be thinking, well, what, is the, what good then is the law? If all it does is stir up our passions and causes us to rebel against God even more, what good is it? Well, it achieves the purpose for which God ultimately gave it. And that is by revealing to us that it is impossible for us to keep it. And Paul says in another place, it becomes our teacher to bring us to Christ. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter number 7, when you get down to, to uh, verses 14 down to verse number 24, it is his inability to obey this law and the restrictive commandments of it and the holy commands that are given. He says, I, I, I can't do it. I don't even understand I don't understand why I'm incapable of doing it. And he ultimately decides it's because within my flesh there is this sin that is present within me. Even though my heart and my mind want to serve God, there is... Anybody in the room ever feel this, by the way? In my heart and my mind I want to serve God, but sometimes my flesh just rises up against it and I end up doing what I shouldn't do, saying what I shouldn't say, failing to do what I should do. Even though I know I shouldn't, I should do better, but I don't. I should be obedient, but I'm not. It's because of this sin that rises up within me. And Paul comes to the end of chapter number 7 and verse number 24 and he says, Oh, wretched man that I am. I, I see how broken I am. Who shall deliver me, he says, from this body of death? Verse 25, thank God that Jesus delivers us. The law of sin is present within us. The law of God intended to restrict it and we cannot keep it. Well, then you come to chapter number 8. In chapter 8, Paul says, God solved this problem for us, and he solved it by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Write it down. The Spirit it is not the law, but it is the Spirit that sets us free to serve God. It is the Spirit that sets us free to serve God. Now, I just want to say to some of you that I know where you are. I know where you've come from. And I want you to hear me very carefully. There are some of you who grew up in good Christian homes and you had good godly parents. They loved the Lord and they, they wanted to raise you to honor the Lord. But in their zeal to raise you to honor the Lord, perhaps they emphasized the rules more than they emphasized the relationship and the spirit. And as always happens when the restrictive rules are put on the law of sin, there's a rebellion. And maybe you went through, and maybe are still going through, a bit of rebellion against the rules and the restrictions that they put on your, on your life. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not against rules. I've raised four kids. I, I'm for good, godly rules. But parents understand that when we impose rules without emphasizing the life of the Spirit that enables us and sets us free to serve God in joy, then we are creating rebels instead of disciples. It's not the law, it's not the rules, it's not the commands 
that will check, give me freedom to serve God. It is his spirit that dwells within me. And so the spirit of God sets us free to serve the Lord. Look at verse number two. These words are so filled with hope and with uh, light and with encouragement in verse number two when he says, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free. Praise God. You should underline that and circle it. I have been made free from what? I have been made free from the law of sin and death. But it's not the rules that set me free. It's the spirit that set me free. Notice verses 9, 10, and 11. The Holy Spirit is defined here in verse number 9. But you are not, he says in verse 9, but you are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If it is so that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ. Notice three times the spirit is mentioned and you have the Trinity present. The spirit, the spirit of God, and the spirit of Christ. There's the Trinity There is one God exists in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And when we talk about the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we are talking about God himself taking up residence within the believer, taking up his residence in our lives. And four times in verses 9, 10, 11, he says he is in you. He dwells within you. The Holy Spirit dwells within you, and he is there to set us free. So how does he do it? Let me give you these very, very rapid fire sorts of ways that you can know that he is there to set you free. How does he do it? Number one, the Holy Spirit begins to take rule in our lives. When we come to Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us and then regenerating our hearts, he begins to rule our lives and redirect the ways in which we live. Chapter eight, verses four and five, use this phrase, walk after Look at Romans 8 and verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not after the flesh, but who walk after the Spirit. For they that are after, or walking after the flesh, do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are walking after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now listen very carefully. Before you came to Jesus, everything about you, the way that you walked, the life that you lived, was directed by the flesh by your parents and influences and friends to some degree. And then as you grew older and mature and began to form your own opinions and desires and demands by your own, your own flesh. But everything about the way that you lived, the path that you walked, the things that you did, it was all after the flesh. Then this glorious thing happens. You hear the gospel. You repent of your sins. You trust Christ as your Savior. And in that moment, God by his Spirit comes to dwell within your heart. Now, you don't even realize it in the moment. You just say things like, man, I felt warm all over. Or, boy, the the burdens lift off my shoulders. Or, man, I just felt like suddenly I've got this joy. That's the way we describe it. But do you know what it is? It's the Spirit of Almighty God living within you. And as he lives within us, he begins to turn us. And he begins to say, don't walk that way anymore. Walk this way. And we begin to walk, as we cooperate and yield and surrender to him, we begin to walk after the Spirit. So my flesh is no longer in command, now the Spirit is in command. So the rule, the law of sin begins to die as the law of the Spirit begins to take over. He says in verse 5, 6, and 7, those that are walking after the Spirit do mind the things of the Spirit, The word mind means to set your mind upon or to have a worldview or to think a particular way. 
I begin to think the way the Spirit wants me to think. And then in verse number eight, he talks about being in. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God, verse nine, but you are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. It means to be at one with. So when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, he changes the course of our life. He changes the ways in which we think. We walk at one with the Spirit, and this beautiful thing begins to happen. Look at verse 13. The beautiful thing is, as you then walk in the Spirit, through the Spirit, the deeds of the flesh begin to be mortified. Now, I just need to tell you that sometimes we're very quick, especially when somebody comes to faith in Jesus, we're very quick to say, now you're saved, let me give you a list of 22 rules. And number 21 is the most important. <laughs> and we begin to list out, now you're a Christian, you need to do this. You're a Christian, you need to do that. And you're a Christian, you got to stop doing the other. And you're a Christian, you got to... And we start giving them all these rules. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with the rules. And part of discipleship is where they've got... People have to learn how to live for the Lord. But here's the beauty. The rules aren't going to make all the difference. The Holy Spirit's in them. Amen. And when the Holy Spirit begins to change the way they think, change the course of their life, then guess what happens? The deeds of the flesh, which have so defined them forever, begin to slough off and just drop away. They are mortified. They die off. Not because they learn to keep rules. Because the Spirit of God is changing them from the inside out. That's what he does. That's what he does. He sets us free because he begins to rule in our bodies. Number two, the Holy Spirit becomes our new life guide. I'll just pass this quickly because it's really connected to the first one I just mentioned, but look at verse number 14. He says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. He talks about being led by the Spirit. And I I want you to know that the word led there means to come along with. So it's the, idea, it's the idea that the Holy Spirit comes and now he walks this Christian life out with us. You know, very often church feels like this, doesn't it? You come to church, you hear a sermon, it almost seems as if that there is a, a pastor, me or whomever, wherever you might be sitting in church, and that pastor is saying, go and do this. And then you go out and you're like, well, I'm not in church anymore. Nobody around me is doing that. And I don't really, how do I do that? By the way, it's the reason you need to be connected in a life group because you get to live it out together in your life group. But here's the beauty of the Holy Spirit. He's not a pastor on Sunday morning giving you a sermon. He's with you 24-7, 365. And he's showing you how to live this life. He is leading you along the way. Number three, the Holy Spirit transforms us by confirming our union with Christ. He reminds us that we are children of God, that we are justified by faith in Christ. Look at verse number 15. I'm in chapter 8 and verse number 15. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Stop right there. It's so important. It's so important. He says, you were under the bondage of the law. All you had were the rules. And you lived in fear that if you didn't keep the rules, you're in trouble. Well, don't think when you came to Jesus that he just gave you a new set of rules and that you're going to be in trouble if you don't follow the rules. Now, don't misunderstand me. I've said this four times. I'm for the rules. The rules aren't bad. But if you misunderstand the role of the Spirit, he says what the Holy Spirit does to change you, he didn't put you in bondage and he's ready to pound you if you don't do it. You don't have to live under fear. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. You haven't been given the spirit of bondage to fear. You've been given the spirit of adoption. 
And now you cry out, God is my Abba. God is my Father. And I'm in relationship with him. And that changes. It transforms my life. Number four, the Holy Spirit changes our lives by lifting our longings. Man, I wish I had time to talk about all this, and I don't. But I hope you'll go and read chapter number 8, verses 17 to 25 this afternoon. Because here's what he does. He, t- he changes our longings from where we only long for comfort and ease and pleasure in this life. And he changes our longings for ultimate fulfillment and completion in the presence of God in heaven. In fact, he says in those verses in Romans that, you know what, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer in this life. But know this, the glory that will be revealed in you, doesn't, it's, you can't even compare the sufferings of this life with the glory that will one day be revealed. It doesn't mean the streets of gold. It means the complete likeness to Christ in his presence, fully redeemed forever. The glories of that full, eternal, complete redemption will so outweigh the sufferings in this life. And so here's what he says. I'm going to change you by changing your longings. So you stop always saying, I want this life to be perfect and exactly like I want it to be and make me happy, healthy, and wealthy. And you just begin to go, God, I want to be with you. Lord, I want to be what you want me to be. God, I I want my life to honor you. He changes your life. And it's such a transformation from a fleshly, earthbound, demanding way of life to a life that wants to bring honor and glory to God. There's one last thing. The Holy Spirit changes our lives. He transforms us by teaching us to pray. And this could be an entire message unto itself, but verses 26 and 27 said to us, likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities, for we don't know what we should pray for as we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered, and he that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Prayer is a spiritual activity that does not come naturally to the flesh. And so the Spirit of God has to teach us how to in, uh, um, intercede for others, how to have fellowship with God through prayer. And he changes us as he teaches us to pray. All of that to say, and let me wrap up by saying to you, that the tyrant of sin that ruled in your life before you came to Jesus has been stripped of his power. He's been been dethroned by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the indwelling Holy Spirit, verse number three, sets me free from the dominion of sin. And so if you're here today and you know Jesus as your Savior and you say, I want my life to be more and more transformed, less and less sinful. Can I make one thing clear lest you misunderstand? At no point today did I say that as the Spirit of God indwells you, you will never sin again. I did not say you will be sinless. You will never be sinless until you get to heaven. You will not be sinless, but you should, if y'all are listening, say amen. You will not be sinless in this life, but you should sin less as he is transforming us and giving us more and more victory. And if you're here today and you say, well, I want to be more free than I am, then let me give you the good news. If you know Christ, Holy Spirit lives within you, and he's there to break the power of sin.